Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of executions. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. February 26, 1951, was an unseasonably warm day in New York City, but David Greenglass wouldn't see it. He was inside the U.S. courthouse. To the FBI agents sitting opposite him, David looked meek, desperate even. He wore prison-issued light blue pants and a white shirt. Seemed like he hadn't shaved for days. The agents wanted to know about his sister, Ethel Rosenberg, again. They asked if David was sure she hadn't helped her husband, Julius, spy for the Soviet Union. David responded, for what felt like the millionth time, that he'd never discussed espionage with his sister. He'd admitted to everything else the agents asked about. But on that point, he was adamant. He was telling the truth. This was problematic for the FBI. Granted how determined they were to convict Ethel, they needed something, and they had a plan. Casually, they brought up David's wife and the mother of his children, Ruth. She'd just had a baby, and even though she'd been involved in the spy ring too, she hadn't been charged with anything. At least, not yet. Now, the ball was in David's court. He could stick to his story that Ethel wasn't involved, or he could implicate her. If he gave the FBI what they wanted, Ruth might avoid jail time. So, when the agents asked him once more whether Ethel was involved in Russian espionage, David changed his tune. Maybe he'd been wrong in his previous testimonies. His sister wasn't just a loyalist for the Communist Party in the United States. She really had been the mastermind behind a Soviet spy ring. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, We dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, a Jewish couple accused of supplying the Soviet Union with U.S. government secrets in the 1940s. Allegedly, their activities gave the USSR the intel to build its own atomic bomb during the Cold War and the Rosenbergs paid the ultimate penalty for their supposed espionage, death by the electric chair. Last time, we discussed the official government story of the Rosenberg spy ring. The evidence against them came solely from Ethel's brother David and his wife Ruth. Both were given leniency for their testimonies. This episode, we'll discuss three conspiracy theories related to the case. First, 
that anti-Semitism fueled the Rosenbergs' conviction, second, that their spying was critical to the Soviets developing their own atomic bomb, and third, that Ethel Rosenberg, who died by electric chair, was actually innocent. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. In April 1951, right after the Rosenbergs were sentenced to death, the world erupted in fury. Protests broke out across the globe and continued for the next two years. The global outrage was a direct response to the trial's verdict. The Rosenbergs had been convicted on the thinnest of evidence. Testimonies from Ethel's brother, David Greenglass, and his wife, Ruth, What became clear, though, was that both David and Ruth had been involved in the conspiracy. They faced long sentences if they didn't cooperate with the FBI. And so, over the months of interrogations, the two changed their stories to cast increasing blame on the Rosenbergs. Which became the only evidence against them. Without David and Ruth's testimonies, there was nothing to go on. Despite that, their punishment was the cruelest one imaginable, death by electric chair. This sentencing made people wonder if there was more to it than just the known facts. Maybe the government wanted to make examples of the couple because they were Jewish. 
Which brings us to conspiracy theory number one. The Rosenbergs' convictions were fueled by anti-Semitism. To understand this theory, we need to go back to the couple's childhood. Julius and Ethel were born the children of Jewish immigrants, and they grew up in a world of virulent anti-Semitism. At the turn of the century, many high-profile celebrities had no problem spouting their hateful beliefs about Jewish people. In 1919, the year after Julius was born, car manufacturer Henry Ford published almost 100 articles blaming Jews for just about everything, from causing World War I to the inefficacy of the Navy. And many shared his views. In addition to committing hate crimes against black Americans, the Ku Klux Klan also saw Jewish people as threatening the so-called purity of the white race. By the 1930s, things had only further deteriorated. One of the most popular radio personalities, a Catholic priest named Charles Coughlin, blamed Jews for causing the Great Depression. Coughlin, Ford, and various other public figures often invoked racist stereotypes of Jews as money-hoarding capitalists. Yet at the same time, Jews became their scapegoat for another fear, communism. Jews were caricatured as secretly supporting the USSR and trying to subvert the American way of life. Now, you may be wondering how people could label Jews as greedy capitalists and radical communists simultaneously, because at their core, these are opposite ideological beliefs. It's important to point out that racism isn't logical. People can maintain paradoxical ideas as long as they feed into their core belief that a certain group is bad. In reality, many American Jewish people did support communism and other leftist causes, and for good reason. Because at a time when few organizations were willing to oppose the Nazi party, the communists did, staunchly. In Germany, Hitler's party grew in power throughout the 1930s, and it wasted no time clamping down on Jewish citizens. They were forced to wear identifying badges on their clothes, they were corralled into ghettos, and they were sent off to so-called work camps. Julius and Ethel were just teenagers in New York City at the time, but the atrocities in Europe were no less potent for American Jews. People like them were being persecuted for their Jewish identity. To the despair of many, the American government refused to take action. The U.S. only entered World War II in 1941 after the attack on Pearl Harbor. And when U.S. troops finally marched across the liberated Europe, they had to confront the horrors of the crimes they'd initially turned a blind eye to. As part of Hitler's final solution, over six million Jews had been systematically murdered. That's when attitudes around anti-Semitism in America shifted. The U.S. wanted to position itself in strict opposition to Nazi ideology, so the American government emphasized its own tolerance and diversity. Anti-Semitism was no longer as socially acceptable as it was before. Still, America's views didn't change overnight. The conflation of Jews with communists persisted into the 1950s, and because of the Rosenberg's case, it's possible that bias got worse. 
Julius and Ethel became the poster children for what America viewed as traitors. Many American Jews feared that they too would suffer for the Rosenbergs' crimes. The collective disdain towards the couple was so intense, some worried the country would jump to the conclusion that all Jews were communist spies. One incident of vandalism in New York summed up this animosity. A subway train was graffitied with the words, Keep traitor Jews out of the country. Remember traitor Jews Rosenbergs. As a result of this surging anti-Semitism, many Jewish organizations in the U.S. felt compelled to repudiate the Rosenbergs. These groups went out of their way to insist on their own patriotism and condemn the couple. Outside of the U.S., though, public perspective on the Rosenberg case was quite different. In fact, much of the world was outraged. They felt like the Rosenbergs had been framed because of their Jewish identity. Some compared the situation to the infamous Dreyfus Affair in France. In 1894, a Jewish army officer named Alfred Dreyfus had been accused of treason. But when evidence surfaced proving his innocence, some members of the French government sought to suppress it, and in so doing, they let the real traitor walk free. To many, the Rosenberg case looked like history repeating itself. Back in America, officials were becoming concerned with the optics of the case. They desperately needed a conviction, but fears of their trial appearing anti-Semitic were serious. President Truman decided the best course of action was to appoint a Jewish judge, Irving Kaufman, and Jewish prosecution team to the Rosenberg case. With a courtroom full of Jewish lawyers and a judge, criticism that anti-Semitism was playing a pivotal role in the trial would be dulled. At least that was the government's reasoning on the surface. In reality, though, officials had another incentive to appoint Kaufman his relationship with the FBI. As it stood, the Bureau knew something groundbreaking that the public didn't, and they wanted to keep it that way. During World War II, the U.S. government instituted a top-secret program called the Venona Project. Its mission was to intercept messages between Soviet intelligence agencies and Russian embassies abroad. Yet the Soviets wrote all their messages in code, one of the most complex ciphers ever. And while it took American codebreakers years to figure it out, eventually they did. Amongst the decrypted messages were ones that revealed that Julius Rosenberg, David Greenglass, and Ruth Greenglass were working as spies for the Soviets. So Julius Rosenberg was guilty after all. But there was a big problem. The prosecution couldn't present the messages as evidence in court. If they did, it would reveal that the Americans had cracked the Soviet code. So the Bureau decided to play dirty. Agents pressured David and Ruth to enhance their stories to undeniably incriminate both Julius and Ethel. That way, the FBI believed Ethel's conviction would pressure Julius into a confession. And as part of the plan, the FBI made sure that Judge Kaufman was in on the whole thing. 
According to Prosecutor Roy Cohn, as the trial progressed, his team secretly talked with the judge on the phone many times. During these calls, they let Kaufman in on what the FBI knew, and they ensured that when it came time to sentencing the young couple, he pursued the greatest penalty possible. Remember, at the start of the trial, Judge Kaufman expressed his opinion that the evidence would show that the Rosenbergs were spies, even though there wasn't much to speak of. Now, it's plain to see that he said this not as an impartial judge, but as part of a conspiracy to make sure the jury found the Rosenbergs guilty. The Rosenbergs were tried in a court built against them, and their penalty was handed down by a judge whose own Jewish identity was exploited to disregard concerns about anti-Semitism. As for where this places the theory that the Rosenbergs' conviction was fueled by anti-Jewish hate, we have to consider a few things. For one, racial inequality and racist hate certainly dominated the social climate at the time of their conviction. In hindsight, it's impossible to totally separate how the Rosenbergs were perceived from the fact that they were Jewish. That's an understatement. The Rosenberg trial happened not only during an era of anti-communist paranoia, but also of anti-Semitism. There was bias coming at them from all sides. That's true. But there's also the fact that they were guilty. The proof is in the Soviet telegrams. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the absolute truth, I give this theory a 5. I'm a little more critical of how the trial was handled. It seems impossible for there to be due process when the judge is in cahoots with the FBI. I say this theory is a 7. Covert information guided the prosecution strategy, and the backroom negotiations between the prosecution and judge seemed to indicate the Rosenberg's trial was decided before it even began. True. And though Julius and the Green Glasses were confirmed spies, we don't actually know what they did. Like what information they passed on, and whether they actually helped the Soviets build an atomic bomb, like the U.S. government accused them of. Coming up... Nuclear Secrets. Hi, I'm Christine Schieffer. And I'm M. Schultz. We're the hosts of Rituals, the new Spotify original from Parcast. If you've heard our podcast and that's what we drink, you know we are no strangers to true crime and the paranormal. We're also into the occult uh, to chat about, not to join, but, you know, to, to learn and educate. Every Monday on Rituals, we're journeying through mystifying stories of sorcery, alchemy, Satanism, and more, and trying to determine if the dark arts of the past impact us today. Like weather witches? Who were they? Or the Fountain of Youth? Address, please. (laughs) Don't forget about werewolf trials, Em. Objection, Christine. Let's not give too much away. And instead, let's tell everyone to follow our new podcast, Rituals, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. On June 19, 1953, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were executed for allegedly acting as spies for the Soviet Union. This came during an intense period of anxiety in America, so their crime seemed unforgivable. During their trial, the public went so far as to blame them for the Korean War and all future atomic warfare. Even President Dwight Eisenhower claimed that the Rosenbergs had potentially condemned tens of millions to death in future nuclear conflicts. In other words, he took their actions to their worst logical conclusion. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number two. The Rosenbergs did pass on intel that helped the Russians create an atomic bomb. As we get into this theory, it's important to point out one key detail. At the time of the trial, no one had publicly established what exactly the Rosenbergs told the Soviets. The Rosenbergs ended up being charged with conspiracy to commit espionage, which meant they were accused of intending to deliver secret messages to a foreign power. The courts never addressed what those messages were and whether their content was actually significant or not. However, given the climate of paranoia in America and statements from President Eisenhower, many people deduced that the Rosenberg's espionage directly led to the Russians getting an atomic weapon. After all, their arrest correlated with the news that the USSR had successfully tested its own nuclear bomb. What Americans weren't so willing to consider, though, was how the Rosenbergs could have had access to that level of highly classified knowledge. They weren't scientists or government officials. Their only connection to the Manhattan Project was through David Greenglass. And while David did work as a machinist at government facilities in Los Alamos, New Mexico, where the first atomic bomb was developed, even he had no idea what he was working on. The government simply didn't share that info with low-level employees like David. All he knew about the project was what he pieced together from tidbits he overheard and what he knew from being on the ground in Los Alamos. It was easy enough to know the base's layout, how many people worked there, and the names of top scientists. But beyond that, information was pretty guarded. Plus, the Soviets already knew all that. They were well aware that the Americans were working on an atomic weapon in Los Alamos, and they had a good sense of the general information related to that project. The intel David provided wasn't the kind of high-level science the Soviets needed to crack the nuclear code. They'd gotten that from an actual expert, Klaus Fuchs, the famed nuclear physicist turned spy. Remember, Fuchs' arrest actually led to the breakup of the Rosenberg espionage ring because they shared mutual spy connections. So the public quickly jumped to what felt like an obvious conclusion. The Rosenbergs were on equal footing with Fuchs. But that wasn't the case at all. 
While Fuchs knew exactly what the Soviets needed in order to build a bomb, David Greenglass, who lacked high-level physics training, had no idea. However, that didn't stop him from trying to contribute. After all, David, a tried-and-true communist sympathizer, saw the Soviet cause as something worth fighting for. And to prove his mettle, he did something really reckless. He stole uranium. In 1950, around four years after David left the army, an FBI agent paid him a visit in New York. He had some questions about uranium that went missing from Los Alamos during the war. Uranium was an extremely valuable element that made up the core of atomic bombs. And at Los Alamos, the military stored uranium in a shop room. When the FBI officer asked David about this uranium, David was adamant that he'd never set foot inside that shop room. After the agent left, though, David went into a nearby closet and pulled out a sock stuffed in the back. Inside, a small hemisphere of radioactive uranium stared back at him. The next day, David took the uranium ball and threw it into the East River. David's theft might seem pretty incriminating, not to mention environmentally hazardous. His actions made it look like he'd taken a huge risk to aid the communist cause. But the truth was, he wasn't the only one at Los Alamos with sticky fingers. As it turns out, hundreds of golf ball-sized pieces of uranium had gone missing. And after much investigation, the FBI finally figured out exactly what happened. And it wasn't wide-scale espionage. Instead, workers stole small hemispheres of uranium as souvenirs. Apparently, they're circular and hollow shape made for cool ashtrays. So, David made a sinister theft at the same time he was engaged in underground activity. But the two were unrelated. He was just another overconfident GI, wanting to show off that he'd worked on the Manhattan Project. This may actually point to the fact that David wasn't the best spy. According to his peers, David had trouble being subtle about his political beliefs. He made them known to just about anyone who'd listen, even at Los Alamos. He raved about the Soviet Union's accomplishments and how they'd solve all the world's problems. It got so intolerable that some of his roommates on the base actually asked to be transferred to other barracks. David probably believed he was being subtle, when in reality, he wasn't all that savvy. His big mouth eventually got him in trouble. The prosecution was likely wise enough to know that David was mostly talk and no action, but that hardly mattered. David worked on the Manhattan Project and that was enough of a connection for U.S. authorities. They could claim that, under Julius and Ethel Rosenberg's supervision, he had passed along secrets to the Soviet Union that helped build an atomic bomb. Until the 1990s, though, it was still unclear what exactly Julius Rosenberg shared with the Soviets. That answer finally came in 1997, when a retired KGB agent named Alexander Feklasov dropped a bomb of his own. He admitted that he'd been Julius's contact in New York. 
As Feklasov told it, Julius was just the conduit. He didn't actually understand anything about the atomic bomb. He passed on whatever David told him. Feklasov wasn't the only one to make that claim. In 2008, the National Archives released the grand jury testimony from the Rosenberg case. As a result, an original member of the spy ring named Morton Sobel made his own statement. Sobel had been a college classmate of Julius's and had been tried alongside the Rosenbergs, but only received a 30-year sentence. After serving more than 18 years, he was released. Throughout his life, Sobel insisted that he and the Rosenbergs were innocent, but at age 91, in the wake of the new revelations, he completely changed his story. He confirmed that both he and Julius had worked for the Soviets. Yet Sobel said neither of them had provided information that was critical to the development of the atomic bomb. He even called Julius's information junk. Simply put, though Julius was involved in espionage, the Rosenbergs weren't the villains that the American government made them out to be. They certainly weren't responsible for the millions of deaths that came from nuclear warfare. Julius's intel was redundant at best. In light of what the Rosenbergs actually did, or rather didn't do, their death sentence was extremely severe. Though they were only charged with conspiracy, the Rosenbergs were sentenced as if they'd done something far worse. While many people still believe that the Rosenbergs gave the Soviets intel that helped them build an atomic bomb, there seems to be a lot of evidence against this. As a machinist, David Greenglass didn't have complete access to top-secret information at Los Alamos. Whatever he passed on definitely didn't help the Soviets crack the secret of nuclear fission. That might be true, but it's also worth pausing to question the validity of these sources. That was according to the KGB and another Soviet spy, Morton Sobel. Both have reasons to downplay the severity of the Rosenberg's crime. But Sobel was 91 when he finally confessed to being a spy. By that point, he had no reason to lie about what he and Julia shared with the Russians. And it seems like we keep passing over scientists like Klaus Fuchs, who we know had access to the intel Soviets needed to create an atomic bomb, and gave that information to the Russians. So for me, this theory is a three. I think there's a compelling case for what you're saying. There's really no clear explanation for how the couple would have secured such high-level intel. Still, the fact that our evidence to debunk this theory comes almost exclusively from Soviet sources makes me a little more skeptical. I'm going to give this theory a 4 out of 10. One thing we can agree on is that given what they shared, the Rosenbergs shouldn't have received the death penalty. Especially Ethel Rosenberg, who the FBI knew was innocent. Coming up... The Bureau's Secret Debates. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. 
The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now, back to the story. Ethel Rosenberg's guilty verdict for conspiracy to commit espionage rested on two people and two people only, David and Ruth Greenglass. According to the Greenglasses, Julius and Ethel cajoled them into spying for the USSR in 1944, The couple drew them in with misleading arguments about sharing military information. But according to people who knew the green glasses, David and Ruth didn't actually need much convincing. They were both outspoken, diehard communists from the start. It was only when they faced prison time that the two changed their tune. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number three. Although Julius was a spy, Ethel was innocent of all charges. In August 1950, months before the trial, the grand jury asked David if his sister Ethel was part of the espionage plot. Without hesitation, he answered that she wasn't. David swore that he never spoke to his sister about it at all. But the lack of evidence against Ethel made the FBI nervous. Internal memos have since revealed that the Bureau actually had no idea whether Ethel had done anything illegal. Their entire strategy rested on seeking a stiff sentence and possibly the death penalty for Ethel so Julius would talk. So to convict her, they needed evidence. And as the trial drew closer, it seems Ruth Greenglass decided that the time had finally come to change stories. This way, she and David might be able to get off scot-free. It was a surprising move for Ruth. Giving up her own brother and sister-in-law to authorities was difficult, not only because of their familiar relationship, but also because of who she was. Ruth supported the communist cause. When Julius and Ethel recruited Ruth to help spy for the Soviet Union in November 1944, they likely knew she'd say yes. Apparently, she and David admired the Rosenbergs as the ideal communist couple. In their love letters, Ruth wrote to David that she hoped their children would grow up in a socialist world where money was useless and luxuries were shared by all. But once Ruth realized the seriousness of what they had done, she must have decided that none of this mattered. In February 1951, She told authorities that Julius and Ethel were the conniving masterminds who had lured the naive green glasses in. Plus, 
she suddenly remembered a striking detail. In September 1945, Ethel typed up all of the information David had brought to Julius from Los Alamos. It was exactly the kind of evidence the agents needed. Two days later, the FBI questioned David about this new information. Confronted with Ruth's story, he backed up everything his wife said. Ethel sat at the typewriter, the keys clicking away as David rattled off his intel. The typewriter story made it look like Ethel actively participated in the conspiracy to commit espionage. Even though this completely contradicted David's earlier account, that didn't seem to matter to the FBI. They could move forward with their case. The Bureau ran with the idea. In fact, during the trial, Prosecutor Roy Cohn insisted that Ethel, not Julius, oversaw the spy ring, though he knew that wasn't true. It may seem incredible then, with the prosecution lying through its teeth, that she insisted on her innocence and refused to answer further questions. Unfortunately, her fate was tied to her husband's. And the FBI was going to get Julius, whether by hook or by crook. Ultimately, sentencing the couple to the electric chair didn't work, and their plan backfired. Now two parents were about to die for an ambiguous crime. That's when the Bureau's conversations got really interesting. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover himself didn't support their execution. While he'd been the one to suggest using Ethel as a lever against Julius, he was pushing to threaten her with a 25 to 30 year sentence, not death. Which, to be clear, was still a significant punishment. And Hoover's opposition to her execution wasn't necessarily about justice. He was worried about optics. Ethel's death could make the U.S. look bad on the global stage. As a mother of two young children, the Rosenberg kids would be left as orphans, and no woman in U.S. history had ever been executed for a crime other than murder. But louder voices prevailed. On the eve of the Rosenbergs' execution in June 1953, their lives lay in the hands of President Dwight Eisenhower. He alone could decide to show clemency. It seems he chose to double down. Apparently, Eisenhower bought into the narrative that Ethel was the one really pulling the strings in the spy ring and even domineering in her marriage. The president also believed that pardoning Ethel would encourage the Soviet Union to recruit female spies. Because of her gender, Ethel ended up receiving a harsher sentence than she should have. The U.S. government didn't seem to see Ethel as a human being, but rather as a means to an end. But she was a human with fears and feelings. After her conviction, she wrote to her lawyer begging him to find a suitable caretaker for her two boys. Though the press cast her as cold and unemotional, Ethel was a doting mother. It tortured her that she wasn't there for her kids through this difficult time. Up until the very end, the FBI wrung its hands over how to handle Ethel's execution. They debated whether she should be killed first. That way Julius might finally crack and confess to everything. 
But Hoover once again thought about it from a PR angle. He worried that if Julius confessed after Ethel's death, thus saving himself, then it would look bad. It would be clear that the government had forced him to talk by killing his wife. Ultimately, Ethel's death was more inhumane than her husband's. She needed an additional two jolts of electricity to kill her. Some witnesses said that they saw smoke coming from her head. Yet, while Ethel's horrible death seemed an end to her story, once again, time revealed the truth. Remember, in 1995, the declassification of the Project Venona telegrams revealed crucial details about the Rosenbergs, and the Soviet messages indicated that while Julius, David, and Ruth all had code names, Ethel did not. One message stated very clearly that though Ethel was a devoted communist, she was not a spy. Soon after, David Greenglass admitted that his wife Ruth invented the story of Ethel typing up David's spy intel. He also came clean that he went along with it. David even said that it may have been Ruth who did the actual typing. The one piece of evidence against Ethel which had ultimately led to her execution, was completely false. If we're considering whether Ethel was innocent, I have to admit, I think so. She obviously knew what was happening, but knowing about a crime isn't the same thing as committing it. It's pretty clear that once the green glasses realized they were in trouble, They pointed their fingers at Ethel and betrayed their family in order to save themselves. It's pretty awful to think about. Ethel was a quiet, intelligent woman who the whole country turned against. They believed she abandoned her children for communism and that she passed nuclear secrets to the Soviets. But we now know that Ethel had nothing to do with these decisions. She probably thought that even if Julia spied, she would at least be allowed to stay with her children. But the government decided otherwise. I give this theory a 9 out of 10. I feel the same way. The FBI thought their hardball strategy would work, but it only served to put them between a rock and a hard place. We know that there was some evidence against her husband, Julius, but there certainly wasn't anything that warranted sending an innocent mother to the electric chair. Ethel wasn't guilty of the charges she was convicted of. This gets a 9 out of 10 from me, too. At its core, the Rosenbergs' case is far more complicated than just innocence or guilt. As their sons explained in a 2021 interview, it's about what justice should look like in a supposedly free country. Julius and Ethel did do some of the things they were accused of, but not all of them. Their trial wasn't fair, and at this point, it's too late to right the wrongs done to them. There is one small chance to rectify the past, though. In 2015, the Rosenberg sons began a campaign to exonerate their mother. It's still ongoing. The decision will have to come from the President of the United States. It won't give the Rosenbergs their lives back, but it would at least acknowledge that they didn't deserve their fate.
Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. For more information on the Rosenbergs, amongst the many sources we used, we found Ethel Rosenberg, An American Tragedy by Ann Seba, and The Brother by Sam Roberts, extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Kirsten Liu, with writing assistance by Amber Hurley and Mackenzie Moore. Fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Werewolves, witches, and Arthur Conan Doyle? Oh my! Sounds like fascinating topics to discuss on our new show, Rituals, Christine. You know what, Em? It sure does. Every Monday on Rituals, join us as we explore the evolution of spiritualism and the occult through stories, practices, and the impact on modern culture. If you've heard our podcast and that's why we drink, this is the perfect pairing for you. And if you haven't, go give us a try. Follow our Spotify original from ParCast, Rituals. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.